0: You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, September the 31st in the year of our Lord, 2019. September the 31st. You know what I'm reading? (laughs) I'm reading the clock, (laughs) 9.31. It's April the 29th in the year of our Lord, 2019. 19. And we want to give a thanks to those who contributed during the Shareathon. At this time, a grand total of $123,601. And we understand even more funds will be coming in. So we certainly appreciate that. On Mondays, we take a look at the various readings. This is the third Sunday of Easter. And I'm going to have a problem because these are really three good readings. That isn't counting the psalm, which is Psalm 30. But Acts chapter 9 is all about the conversion of St. Paul. Then John 21 is Jesus meeting his disciples for the first time at the sea after his resurrection, where he prepares breakfast for them. And then I think I'm going to be preaching on Revelation 5. It just so happens to be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And so that's probably what I'm going to be preaching on. So what am I going to be doing today? I tend not to go over the reading that I'm preaching on because I'm at four congregations helping them out and I understand a lot of them are listening to Law and Gospel each morning at 9.30. And the way I do preaching, I start off with a question that about 90% of Lutherans get wrong. And therefore I use the sermon to show the correct answer and that's kind of the good stuff for the head But then I always am ending on a long gospel, namely a gospel point of view of comfort. That's how I put together all my sermons. Uh, Yesterday was a fun sermon. I simply asked a question. How many of you, when you get to heaven, do you think that Jesus looks like God the Father? And, of course, nobody did. At least they didn't put their hand up. Some people say I don't want to put my hand up because I think you're going to ask me why I answered the way I did. But be that as it may, the whole sermon was about Revelation chapter one, where Jesus appears with white woolly hair, as white as snow, it says. And there's a lengthy description of Jesus in Revelation one, but then when you go to Daniel seven, guess who's also described in a similar way is the Ancient of Days, and we know from Daniel seven, the Ancient of Days is God the Father, and in also Daniel seven, he sends the Son of Man who is Jesus to earth to redeem the earth. In fact, we see both those individuals in Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4, that's the Ancient of Days, and Revelation 5, it's Jesus. So the point I was making is there really is not a distinction between God the Father and Jesus Christ in the sense that they're so different as persons that they think differently. Now, that was the comfort part that no, Jesus thinks a certain way about us, and that's clear from the cross. Father, forgive them. Uh, it is finished. I've come to bring forgiveness, etc. And then I have run into Christians who are worried about meeting God the Father on Judgment Day. But in reality, I pointed out at a verse that both Jesus and God the Father are going to be the judge on Judgment Day. And the comfort of the message was, if you want to know what God the Father thinks about you right now, then learn what Jesus thinks about you, because they are identical in their thinking, even though they're two separate persons. And I even brought in the Holy Spirit, and the liturgy helped quite a bit. Because all three are always being mentioned throughout the liturgy, which are quotes also from the scripture. And the point we simply were making is there is not an understanding of God the Father that he is going to be mean and he's going to judge you and you better be doing good works or else, in contrast to Jesus who says you're saved by grace through faith. And that's clear from the Old Testament when you take a look at it in context that you're saved also in the Old Testament through faith, not through obedience. Remember, God says to Abraham, you're going to have a baby? Sarah's kind of old. Well, she's still going to have a ba- baby. And Abraham believed. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what we have here then is a sermon that we're going to be doing on Revelation. But right now, I thought that the thing we want to take a look at is the conversion of um, St. Paul. I think that's a real good one, too. And it begins with Acts chapter 9. Now, during the Easter season, and there's a whole bunch of Sundays, the second Sunday of Easter, the third, the fourth, the fifth... The readings are not from the Old Testament. They're from Acts. So, without further ado, let's take a look at Acts chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. First time we meet Saul is, of course, at the stoning of Stephen, where Saul is kind of holding the clothes of those who are doing the stoning. And he becomes a Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, he talks about if anybody's going to be saved according to the flesh, in other words, according from the point of view of man, Saul is definitely going to be saved. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the highest. He, uh, under the law, he was blameless, which means he kept the ceremonial laws perfectly. And then he was after those whom he thought were actually false teachers against Judaism, namely the Christians. Now, some people don't think that Paul actually contributed to the murder of Christians. But not only does verse 1 say he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, but it was not at all unusual that when he would take them bound to prison, they would be killed there. Verse 3, Now as he went his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? Now, see, that's kind of important that that word Lord could just mean, you know, head of a a farm or something like that but I believe he's recognizing that this is a voice from heaven and this could be the Lord, he said. The answer, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, that is a very comforting verse because Paul was not persecuting Jesus. Remember, as I said, we first heard of about him After the stoning, or at the stoning of Stephen, which occurred after the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost. So we have no evidence at all in the Bible that Saul had ever persecuted Jesus personally. So, why is this a comfort? Because when you become baptized, and we talked about this yesterday in the sermon, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are now within you. And therefore, if you're persecuted, they are also. In fact, uh, doesn't Jesus say, in talking about the sheep and the goats, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you're doing unto me. And, And that's, he's talking about fruit of the Holy Spirit, good works. But it also would be if you are being persecuted. Now, without waiting for any comment from Saul, Jesus says, verse 6, Acts 9, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, the men who were with them traveling stood speechless. They they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Uh, th- this occurs a number of times when a voice comes from heaven. Some people think it's thunder, uh, Jesus actually thanks his father in one occasion uh, for giving the understanding of what he is doing uh, to the people. So God does speak to Jesus, God the Father, uh, a number of times besides baptism and the transfiguration. This is my beloved son, et cetera, et cetera. So he has these orders. Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. I've known a number of blind people, and it's not at all unusual that they'll often have their eyes open. They don't go around with closed eyes. I remember one of my best friends, still is, Pastor David Andrus. He was really quite amazing. Um He was at one time a pastor at Our Redeemer Overland and he would preach a sermon and he would have his eyes looking out over the congregation and some people were amazed how well he was able to speak uh, by memory, but he wasn't speaking by memory. (laughs) He had a braille copy of his sermon and he was using his fingers to read it. Of course, they couldn't see the copy and he even gave out the Lord's Supper. I was never there when he did that, but uh, it it was quite amazing. So a, a blind person doesn't necessarily always have their eyes closed. And in this case, his eyes were even open, but he was blind. So his friends led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, I think a lot of us forget about those three days. One could speculate, why did God do it for three days? Well, of course, there was another three days we remember, from Friday to Sunday, the crucifixion to the resurrection. One of the things I like pointing out is that, especially in the book of Revelation, you really need to know the significance of numbers. Like the number seven is often referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The number three is referring to the Trinity. Uh, Number 12 is kind of a perfect number. And that's why when it talks about how many of the elect are still on earth, it talks about 144,000. And obviously there are more than that, but it's just symbolic of a perfect number. So for three days, he was without sight. Put yourself in his place. He's realized that he was persecuting Jesus. Now, how did he know that? Well, he heard the words and he received faith that that's what he really was doing. I don't think I would be eating or drinking. Somebody come up to me, here's some food for you. I, I don't want any right now. I'm, I'm still thinking of what happened to me. Now, verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, now we don't know whether he was asleep or whether or not it was a vision while he was awake. He says, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So he uses the same word that Paul uses in verse five, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, isn't that interesting, that's where Paul was staying, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So this is what Paul has been doing for three days, praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias is a well-known individual in Damascus. He, He knows the people pretty well. And here comes the Lord telling him to go to this individual named Saul, who's he well aware of. Saul has a reputation of hunting out Christians in order to put them to death. So we can understand verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, I don't think that that is a doubtful statement that Ananias is making to the Lord. It's kind of the, the difference we see between Zechariah when he's told that he's going to have... John the Baptist as a child. And he says, you know, that's not possible. My wife is too old. (laughs) That's what he basically says. And he is made mute until John is born. Now, Mary, when the angel comes to her, she seems to ask a similar question. How can this be that I'm going to be pregnant when I do not know a man? But that's not a question of doubt. That's a Question of interest, which the angel answers her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and therefore you will be with child. So I don't take Ananias's question as not believing the Lord that he should go see him. He's just curious. Verse 15 the Lord says to him, Go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow. I wish I had been in heaven when they had that conversation. I'm sure the Holy Trinity made the decision that Saul would become the apostle to the Gentiles, as Jesus is saying here. But I I'll often like to think that uh, Gabriel and Michael were talking to the Trinity, and the Trinity was saying, well, we should uh, choose an apostle specifically for the Gentiles. And Gabriel and Michael, uh, by the way, I'm making all this up, but it's just in my mind, comes to me. They said, well, why don't you go with uh, Peter? Uh He's pretty faithful. Another would say, well, John the apostle, he would be good to be specifically for the Gentiles. And they would name maybe other apostles, etc. And then the Holy Spirit revealed to them, no, we're going to choose Saul. And you could just see a blank look on the face of the angels. Saul. You see, we we learn something about God in the choosing of Saul. Saul. And this is a characteristic of God that occurs again and again in the Bible. He always appears to make the less likely choice. I remember when Samuel went to the family of David, and David had a number of brothers who were tall and good-looking and strong, and he expected one of them that God would have selected as king. David was real young. He was only taking care of sheep, And God said to Samuel, no, I have chosen David. Uh, David himself, there's an instance showing how God is different. He's to fight a Goliath, and you would assume, okay, let's put on a whole bunch of uh, armor. Well, David could hardly carry it. (laughs) And instead, he took a stone and hit Goliath in the forehead and put him to death. When Jesus was born, you would think the angels would go to the leading religious leaders and tell them, no, they went to shepherds who were unclean. They weren't even allowed into the temple because of their work with sheep. And then they brought Gentiles, Gentile men, to Mary and Joseph. Uh, that that's, doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, none of the Bible makes any sense from a rational point of view. Somebody comes up and he keeps hitting your children. Maybe he's a teacher. And you ask him, why are you hitting them? Well, I don't like you, so I hit them. So what do you do? Well, knowing me, I probably hit him back. (laughs) What does Jesus do? He pays the punishment that the man should have gotten for hitting your children. See, it doesn't make any sense, God's method of salvation. But it is inspired word from God. So once Ananias is told that Saul is going to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, the Lord says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul wasn't suffering at all. He was well-known. He was looked up to. I mean, when one of the top Pharisees come to your town and you're part of Judaism, wow, you have a lot of respect for him. So Ananias, verse 17, Acts 9, departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now, you don't call somebody a brother unless you believe him to have faith. But Ananias was convinced by the Holy Spirit that Saul did have faith. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Remember, Pentecost had now occurred where even lay persons receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's according to Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, two gifts you receive when you're baptized, the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he also then took food, he was strengthened, and for some days, doesn't say how many, he was with the disciples at Damascus. But immediately, he went to the synagogue. What did he do there? He proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, you can imagine that this is not what they expected to hear from Saul. And all, verse 21, who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name of Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Yeah, you can understand that. How many people came to faith just by hearing these words of Saul in the Damascus synagogue? saying he is the son of God. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how did he prove that Jesus was the Christ? Because there's really no evidence outside of the word of God. That's what he was doing. In fact, I dare say That he was probably doing a lot like Jesus did on the road to the Math, uh, I'm sorry, on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who had heard about the crucifixion, heard Jesus had risen from the dead, and were totally confused about what was going on. What did Jesus do? He began to share with them the Old Testament passages, (coughs) excuse me, and the events of Jesus' life. Uh, Not long ago, by the way, I had completed a study. Uh, I went through the whole Old Testament and found over 240 passages that are directly linked to the New Testament as fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's how he proved. I mean, Psalm 22, it says he's going to be pierced in hands and feet. Isaiah 53, it says, The Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. And as Saul would be using these verses, that's the evidence that Jesus is truly the Christ, which is another word for Messiah. On tomorrow's Long Gospel, with the help of Mark Smith, we're going to take a look at another Easter hymn is entitled, With High Delight, Let Us Unite, and it's going to have some interesting passages in it and phrases that once more show the importance of Jesus Christ in your life. Join with us tomorrow on Long Gospel. I'm Pastor Baker. God bless.